So this is a brand new series called Set Apart. Um, and we're gonna, I'm just going to dive into some of the theme scripture that we wanted to kind of kick off this series with just so that um, we have an idea of where we're going as a church, okay? This is going to be in Peter. Peter was a disciple of Jesus, and 1 Peter this is his letter, to, one of the letters to the church, and this is what he says. Peter says, prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control as we live out our, our faith in Christ. Put all hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed uh, to the world. And it says, well, you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into the old ways of living to satisfy your own desire. You didn't know any better. He's given the benefit of the doubt. Look, you, you know, you had an old way of living, but you didn't know any better. And now you know Jesus, and now you know of a better way. He says, uh, but now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God chose you as holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. Now, what he's doing is he's quoting what would be a pretty well-known part of the Torah. It actually comes from Leviticus. Part of the Torah that the, the Jewish people there would have understood, you know, that was a part of the, the call. That's why they had the law, to be holy as God is holy. Holy. So this wouldn't have been anything crazy for them to hear. It would have been like, yeah, we're, that's the call of, to be followers of Jesus now. Don't slip back into your old way. Live holy because God is holy. Here's what he said in the second chapter. You are not like that anymore. And basically said, because you know, your, your life is different. You don't live the same way you used to live. You are a chosen people. And this actual phrase, uh, actually he pulls from Deuteronomy. Again, from the Torah uh, in the King James, it's called a peculiar people, a chosen people. They have lots of words for it, a holy people, a, whole, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. There's a theme in a lot of what we're going to read that comes around this idea of holy and holiness. To be holy or to understand the way in which the, the Old Testament and the New Testament kind of places that on us as followers of Christ. Okay, the Hebrew word, just to help you understand this, uh, Kedusha, um, this, this and several iterations of that word kind of pronounced differently all come around this idea of holy, holiness, to be holy, uh, to do holy kind of thing. This conveys kind of a dual, a duality in terms of its statement, okay? So just understand, Hebrew's got a very, is a very imaginary, or not imaginary, it's got a very uh, imaginative language in terms of very picturesque. It describes things. There's a whole lot packed in the Hebrew words. And so this duality comes in, and I want you to see these words. Uh, that these two thoughts emerge with the word they're using for holy, which is separation from something, okay, separation from something, and to be set apart for something, all right, everybody with me? Those two things. Holiness, not the way you and I kind of hear the word holiness, we hear the word holiness, and it, and it puts on this picture of like perfection, right, of some sort of unattainable ideal for our lives, to be holy. Like, if you grew up in a Catholic faith, it was just those few that became saints. You know what I'm saying? Like, they were the only ones. Usually after a wreck of a life, they did something to, to, to make their lives holy, to be considered holy or a saint. Like, that's, that's part of the way in which we see this word. But really, again, from the Hebrew, even into the New Testament, to live out what Peter and even Paul says, and even you're going to see Jesus says, to be holy is not this ideal of perfect, it's this 
separation from, set apart for life. Here's how Jesus said it in the Gospel of John. Uh, he's praying to God. Jesus is praying to God as John records and says, I've given them your word. God, I've given them your word. The world hates them because they don't belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. Make them, what's the word? Say it out loud. Yeah, make them holy by your, what's the word? Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Help them be separated from, set apart for, by your truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I'm sending them into the world. And I will give myself as a holy sacrifice just for them so they can be, say the two words out loud, made holy by your truth. Again, just think of, if you, as long as you have the proper understanding of this word, you can begin to read it in the way it was really intended, right? God, you know, you've maybe heard the word, the, the phrase, Christian phrase, in the world, not of the world. You ever heard that phrase, right? We're in the world, we're not of the world. Well, that's where it kind of comes from, this idea that God says, I'm not going to remove them from the world. They're going to be in the world, but, but I'm calling them out. I, there's going to be a holiness that defines them, which is a separation from and a set apart for something. And it's basically Jesus saying it's going to be for the truth. It's going to be for you and me and through the Godhead. It's going to be through your word. They're going to be set apart. So that's just a reminder over the next several weeks, this is the foundation of what we're looking at. That's why we call the series Set Apart. What does it mean to be followers of Christ and to be set apart in the way that this kind of scripture calls holiness in our lives as we respond sort of to the, the many, many different things happening in our culture, in our world, I mean, all sorts of things. So I decided to tackle a really small idea today, super small. It's called the rise and fall of moralism. Okay, super small idea. Um, I decided to tackle this today, uh, and, I, and I'm telling you, it's a lot of information. I'm going to try to get into it. I, I want you to just know where we are today, why we are where we are, especially when it comes to several of the topics and kind of the hot topics I'm going to kind of hit today in terms of how do we live and how do we model lives, holy lives set apart, separated from and set apart for God and through his truth, especially in some of the things we're going to talk about. So I just want to kind of help us understand what we mean by moralism, all right? Moralism is a philosophy. I'm going to try to read a little bit here so I can get this information uh, kind of concise for you. Uh, it's a philosophy of following moral values and guidelines using tra usually traditional behavior, imbuing society with justice, freedom, and equality, right? It's this idea driven around behavior and a philosophy, if you will, of kind of moral values and rules and guidelines that bring the results we want, right? Justice, freedom, equality. That sounds like a stump speech, doesn't it? Like, a, like that sounds great. We all want those things, and we're going to let this, this, these values and these things kind of help us get there. The problem, though, is with moralism, is moralism is not the same as Christianity. It's not the same as what we've been called to be and to do as followers of Christ. It's not the same, and I want to show you why. Now, this is a great quote from Tim Keller. Tim Keller basically said that in the postmodern realm, postmodern people 
They've been rejecting Christianity for years, thinking that it just was indistinguishable from moralism. Right. Why does he say that? Well, listen, I don't know about you, but Christians, I've noticed it, Christians spend a lot of time worried about the behavior of everybody else. Don't you guys realize that? Nobody agrees with me on that? Right? Yeah, Christians spend a lot of time worried about the behavior of the world, worried about the behavior of everyone else. And so it really, we've leaned hard unknowingly sometimes into a very moralistic philosophy and a moralistic system in the past, I even say, a couple hundred years. That Christianity was really driven by rules and behaviors. As long as you acted right, did right, thought right, you know, did right. Uh, you were great. You were a great citizen. You're a great person. You're a great neighbor. You know, you believed all the kind of similar values and things we believe. They, I have no idea if you have a relationship with Jesus, but, but because Christianity became about the rules and behavior, it be, all became about whether or not that was actually happening in our world. And could we kind of regulate that? The problem is this, and it's always been this. Okay, keep going the slides, Tony. All rules, next slide, all rules are based on a system. All rules-based systems are bound to change or to have to create exceptions. This is one of the reasons that, that, again, we cannot let Christianity be kind of a synonym with moralism because all rule-based systems have to change. They have to make changes. There have to be exceptions. If you look at the original rules of football, okay, just the, just the sport of football, and you look at what you see today on TV, you wouldn't even think you're looking at the same sport. Why? Because over time and athleticism and several other factors, rules continued to change. Or they had to make exceptions to rules until eventually those rules changed. That's the way it is, even within the moralism and the, moral, the moralistic nature of people. So I showed you this a, a few series back, and I'm going to briefly kind of hit it again. We did not just get here, okay? So this is not a, this happened, you know, you're, you're talking to grandma at Thanksgiving, and she wants to get back to the good old days. Okay, that's, this didn't just happen, okay? Where we are, where we are. We're talking about centuries of change in terms of moralistic thinking and what was kind of run, reigning supreme at the time. And again, I'll kind of run through this very quickly, but early on, most, most people still, even secular uh, philosophers and, 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 and folks, attribute a lot of the right and wrong that we see out of this kind of Judeo-Christian morals and ethics. That's, that's a very common thing that people understand uh, to believe, that that's, that reigned for a long time. Why? Because around the time of Christ, before Christ through, uh, through the Jewish nation, but then after Christ... Even through, you know, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, not because they were Christian, but there tended to be this idea that sort of like this external deity, whether it's the pantheon of gods or one true God, there was, an, there was an external thing that defined and ruled over us and sort of defined how we see ourselves. And this was, happen this was a view for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Then there were some shifts, Rene Descartes, Rousseau, Marx, again, all these people you can look up, um, they began to work through this idea that, well, it really has more to do with the internal way in which we think, right? The internal psychology is what really does reign sovereign over how we see ourselves. 
right? So, so Marx was all about the freedom of you know, the worker, the oppressed, the oppressor with his communist manifesto. Uh, Rousseau, was, he wrote the social contract. Every, every man should be free. Everything with rules is chains. Uh, Descartes, I think, therefore I am. That's one of his famous quotes. And then we shifted into a, a guy we, you might know, Sigmund Freud. He, he was another one that kind of shifted, and not just from the internal psychological, but then he wanted to go into the emotional and the sexual was really what dictated who we were, kind of informed us of who we were, right? The sexual revolution of the 60s, that was kind of the full tipping point of the expression of, uh, of Freud's um, kind of teaching and thoughts. And, and you certainly you get to kind of where we are today. And, and you understand, this is where we are. It's, the, it's, the, it's that the internal, emotional, psychological self kind of reigns supreme. It's sovereign. And in our case, nowadays, it's sovereign even over our biology, right? That our internal emotions and psychology, it's, it's sovereign even over maybe what our biology says. And so even though, again, a lot of this still was happening during a time that it was shifting from the Judeo-Christian morals, those morals were no longer fixed. They were, they were, they were fluid. Kind of however, again, however people thought or however began to feel, it kind of shifted what might be true. And so even moral theories and moral guidelines shifted. And this is, a, I want to give it to you really quickly. This is five ways in which uh, morality has been shaped, even in the past century. The moral foundations theory comes at five primary cores in which some of these morals can be shaped. I just want you to just think about this for a minute and just kind of see this in our society. There is a purity-based morality rooted in sanctity and piety um, in which purity, when those purity and pure motives and values are violated, the reaction is disgust and, and violators are seen as unclean and deplorable. So a lot of the traditional behavior and a lot of traditional religions would fall into that. There's authority-based morality. It prizes duty, respect, and social order, and it abhors those who show disrespect and, 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 and disobedience. But then you also have fairness-based morality, which stands in opposition to authority-based morality because it judges right and wrong by valuing equality and impartiality and tolerance and disdains those with a bias or a prejudice. Then you have in-group-based morality, which, you know, esteems loyalty to family and community and sometimes a nation uh, and judges those who threaten or undermine them as immoral. And then you look at harm-based Morality, which values care, compassion, and safety, and views wrongness in terms of suffering, mistreatment, and cruelty. We see a lot of this right now in the, in the conversations happening about the two wars, especially with Ukraine and uh, 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 Russia and Israel. And it's like, you know, there's a lot of harm-based morality conversations happening. So we see these five, and we're like, okay, that's, that's, that's ridiculous. But the reality is, is that this is why we're talking about kind of a fractured morality, not the rise and fall of morality like one single point in time, but just think about it. When fairness-based morality rises, authority-based morality falls, right? Because there's there's, there's a fractured idea in our culture now of, of you can have morals, but instead of, it's not all just one moral, it's not just all one value, it's however many values we can come up with. And whatever our base actually is. So the question we're posing, or at least I'm posing today, is how do followers of Jesus model being holy, being set apart 
in a world of fractured moralism. When the rules are different for everyone. When rule-based systems are what people seem to lean into and lean on. And sometimes that can even look similar to Christianity. But it's not the same. So what does that mean? What does it look like to be set apart? Um, well, I, I use this word a lot, this phrase a lot, just to help us remember. It all comes back to God's ideals and instructions. God's ideals and instructions. We were not given, regardless of how you view the law, okay? I mean, the Old Testament, the Jewish faith, like, yes, the Jewish faith created a rules-based system. By the time Jesus showed up, they were full bore in, in this rules-based temple model system. But that's not the way it was given. And the way the Word of God is given to us, and the way we've seen it throughout centuries, is that God has ideals and instructions, and they don't change. Like, they don't change based on society. They don't change based on what we find morally acceptable. They don't change based on a third world country or a first world you know, country. They don't change based on whether it was the medieval times or it's postmodern times. Like, those ideals and instructions never change. And here's how Jesus kind of put it in a really interesting way um, before we dive into the, some of the topics. But this is a really interesting picture he gives them to help them kind of see this, why you can't just have this moralistic idea or rules-based system idea and even tie it to religion. One day, some people said to Jesus, hey, John the Baptist's disciples fast and pray regularly. And so do the disciples of, of the Pharisees. Why are your disciples always eating and drinking? Why? Like, like Jesus, uh, look, we've kind of been looking about how all these disciples function. And uh, John the Baptist's disciples kind of do some things like this. And even the Pharisees' disciples do this. But Jesus, your disciples seem to follow any of those things. Again, rules. Uh, uh, what's going on? And Jesus goes on and gives them a couple quick things like, hey, you know, you don't, you don't fast while the groom's present, you know, in terms of the wedding. Like, you, you feast when the groom's with you. Like, he gave a couple examples that kind of tied into who he was and that kind of thing. But then he gives them this very interesting kind of picture or image. He says, illustration, no one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and uses it to patch an old garment. Why? Because then the new garment's ruined and the new patch doesn't even match the old garment. And everybody listening to this would have been like, yeah, no doubt, that makes total sense. You don't take a brand new shirt and rip the corner off to fix the corner on a beat old, ugly old shirt. Then he says this. No, oh, yeah, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. For the new wine would burst the wineskins, spilling the wine and ruining the skins. New wine must be stored in new wineskins. Again, this is Jesus. It's like, this is very similar. We are all understanding each other. No one would do this. You know it would ruin the wine. It would ruin the wineskin. You're, you're just, you're messing on both things. Then he says this, but no one who drinks the old wine seems to want the new wine. Ah, the old fine, those just fine, they say. This was Jesus basically kind of giving them the illustration of, hey guys, I know you're asking about some rules-based things, but I've, I've come to bring so much more, and you can't take what I'm bringing you and take a piece of it and patch it to your old system. You can't take Jesus and patch it to a morality-based system, and it's going to work. You're going to just ruin both things. 
right? You can't, you can't take this freedom that I'm offering and, and pour it into a system. Like, it was Jesus' way of saying, I'm not here to fix your broken temple system into a better temple system. I'm not here to fix your rule-based system into a better rule-based system. I'm here to turn that around. And as a matter of fact, in the church world, rule-based systems, we call it anyway, when people try to like double down on the rules to try to, you know, the rules don't seem to work so anymore, so we double down on some other rules. We call that legalism. I mean, have you heard that term before? Nod your head if you've heard it, right? The church world, we call it legalism, right? Because it becomes all about the rule and the behavior and what you follow and don't follow. And man, it, and, and I love this quote. This is from Pastor Tillian, I don't remember how to pronounce his last name because I couldn't pronounce it when he was popular, but he was a megachurch pastor for years. And it's interesting, he actually had a moral fa- failure. And in the process of his kind of rehabilitation and, and healing journey, one of the quotes he made comment to in terms of just his own journey was just that, you know, you know the stuff he taught for years, he's like, it didn't work. He says this, he says, the ironic thing about legalism is that it not only doesn't make people work harder, it makes them give up. Moralism doesn't produce morality. Rather, it produces immorality. Moralism doesn't make you more moral because you double down on the rules to try to keep those, those ideals and guidelines. It actually just causes you to reject them. It causes you to leave them. And here's how Paul says it. Okay? Here's how Paul says it to the church in Rome. Very similar, because they were talking about the law and what the law did and didn't do. And Paul says, am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? Because he was saying the law kind of brings about this sin. And they said, of course not. This is Paul. Of course not. It is, in fact, the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known coveting was wrong if the law had not said you must not covet. Okay, so the rule wasn't a bad thing. He said, but sin used this command to arouse all kinds of covetous desires within me. If there were no law, sin would not have that power. Are there a place for rules? Of course there are. The problem is if you're leaning only into the rule, if you're just leaning into this legalistic ideal of moralism, you're going to fail because all the rule does, with me, all the rule does is make me want to bend the rules. Is there anyone else out there with me? Can you say amen at all? Right? Okay. You just want to bend the rules. You want to find a loophole. Like that's, that's what legalism does. That's what moralism does. It, it doesn't move us towards holiness. It moves us to continue to want to serve ourselves. It's not that the rules are wrong. It's just we can't come at it from a moralistic, legalistic perspective. Okay. How do we, how do we, in a world of fractured, fractured moralism, stand set apart, separated from, you know, uh, set apart for, especially in some of the topics that are just filling conversations today? I mean, you're getting ready to hopefully go see family at Thanksgiving, and some of you guys are already excited, and some of you guys are already fretting what's going to be talked about, right? Another political season right? Social issues, family issues. And, and, and I just, I don't know where you stand on some of these things. Uh, I couldn't find a good word for the first one. The first one is a lack of integrity. 
you know, integralist. Like there's a couple ways to say it, but I couldn't even barely pronounce it, so I was just put integrity. It's a lack of integrity that we're dealing and seeing uh, in our culture. But the, but the integrity issue or, or abortion or transgenderism, abortion especially since uh, the Roe versus Wade got overturned, there's so much more conversation coming back up about states and rules and rights and all kinds of things there. Uh, uh, transgenderism, especially when it comes to, uh, you know, what our kids are having to face and experience right now in terms of what sort of the, the movement is to sort of uh, quantify and qualify what this means and how it should look across society. It's all very moralistic in, in, in the way we've come. So I want to just kind of hit them very briefly, but I don't have time to go deep into each one of these three things. But I want to talk about them, how they affect us. And again, if they don't affect you directly, I promise you that you're only one or two relationships away from affecting someone personally. I met with a, a doctor this morning who uh, is part of our church, and, and they were just like, man, I'm having these conversations every day. Like they practically are dealing with it every day. So thank God that's not you, okay? So you can be thankful that's not you, but it, it does matter, especially when it comes to how we respond. So let's just battle the first one. Integrity is not that difficult because the loss of integrity is huge, especially, again, fractured moralism. What people are struggling with the most right now, and I'll give you some statistics from Pew uh, Research. Right now, about 2 in 10 Americans, on average, trust the government to do what is right. Okay? Now that deserves a chuckle, doesn't it? Now, here's what's interesting about that. They, they break that up. Do they trust America to do what is right all the time? Only 1% said that. 1%. They trust the government to do what's right most of the time, right? That was 15%. And, it, and then when you, when you broke that out along party lines and things, the highest it ever got was like 25%, trusting the, the government to do. And what's interesting about that is that about 70 years ago, when they started, you know, tracking these things, the number was 79%. 79% of the country believed that the government would do what's right most of the time. That is a huge loss of, of, of integrity for government leaders. Same is true across the board. I mean, you know, you guys know this. There's a rapid decline in trust in media sources and information. Why? Because too many times, especially in the last few decades, have there been sort of like just blatant lies and just false information that has kind of been just surrounding us. And, and because we're in a place of, well, what I feel is true, and so therefore it's my truth, and you can have your truth, and because of kind of this radical individualism and expression uh, that we have, you know, people are having a hard time even trying to figure out what's true. So now, you know, there, there doesn't seem to be any consequence for lying. Right? There doesn't seem to be any consequence for the fact that you said it, and it was not true. We see this happening with uh, uh, the police and authority figures and, and uh, teachers. Okay? We see this happening across the board where this lack of trust is coming into the judicial system. They don't trust judges and attorneys and you know systems of, uh, of right and wrong, even all the way up to the FBI and to the Department of Justice. Why? Because there doesn't seem to be any consequence if people are not true. There doesn't seem to be any consequence for the lack of integrity. And so here we are as followers of Christ saying, well, how do we respond to that? I, I think that's kind of easy. 
this is the softball one, you know, like we've, we've read this several times before, but we believe, again, if holiness is given to us by his word and his truth, all scripture is inspired by God. It's useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what's wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and it teaches us what to do or what is right. Then it says God uses it to prepare us and equip us for every good work. We already have a source of absolute truth. These ideals and, and instructions don't change. They don't alter. They don't have to make exceptions to these things. And so as followers of Christ, we just need to learn, at least in this current culture, of, that's so desperately, they don't, nobody knows what to believe. We are really got a unique opportunity to be the light. But it requires you to stand on not your truth, okay, because everybody has their own truth and your own opinions and your own, but it doesn't require us to stand on your truth. It also doesn't, we also don't need any more people sharing their truth, okay? So what do, what do I mean by sharing their truth? Well, take their and put in whatever you want, whatever news media you follow, whatever blogs you love, whatever podcast is rocking your world right now, right? Like, we don't need anybody else sharing their truth or trying to stand on your truth. We need people who are willing to stand for his truth. That, that's, the, that's the primary way that as a follower of Christ, you can completely bypass this moralistic issue of integrity. What is true? What is not true? And how do we live in response to it? Now, that's a huge deal. Don't let me skip that because there's lots of Christians who, who for some reason oscillate. They think because they struggle with understanding everything in God's word, that God's word can't be trusted to be absolute truth. And, and here, I want you to say, you know, that's the reason we have questions and answers. And Listen, you can have all the questions in the world. God's not scared of your questions. He's not scared of your concern. He's not scared of the issues that you might bring to him. Trust me. He says, bring it. That's, 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 that's God's response to that. Okay? But, but there's no way you can be set apart if you don't believe that the word of God is true. And my, my opinion is you've got time to figure that out. Don't just float around the Christian bubble and constantly come back to, well, you're just not sure. Figure it out and be sure. You know, do the research. If you need resources, we can give it to you. Canonization of scripture. Like, how did things come together? Why are the manuscript counts so important? When, when, when were things written? How do we know when certain things can be trusted? We can give you some of those resources to help you figure it out. And I'm just telling you as a pastor, go figure it out. Go land on it so you can have something to stand on. So that you yourself can actually have truth in your life. You won't believe how all that alone sets you apart for the work he's called you to do, to be who he's called us to be. The, the next two, I'll talk in similar ways, not because abortion or transgenderism are not two very different things in terms of the, the cultural conversation, but because they have a very similar kind of approach in terms, of, in terms of moralism, and they tend to have a similar response. So I'm just going to kind of talk about them together. I hope that doesn't confuse anyone. 
Uh, and, and, and again, it's not my, not my desire to kind of go on a deep dive on this, but the reality is, is that, you know, the conversation around abortion, especially when it came to the overturning of Roe versus Wade, had everything to do with rights, okay? And, I, and, I, and listen, I, I'm welcome to have a conversation with you about rights and women's rights and these things. No problem. It has a lot of conversations all leaning into the rights that people have or didn't have because of the federal ruling. But very little of the conversation has anything to do with responsibility. And, and when I say little, I mean none. None of the conversation seems to have anything to do with the responsibility that we're called in terms of, uh, as a followers of Christ, in terms of how we should see this and view this in light of God's truth. And so for me, again, this is very, very simple. Um, Pew Research talks about really only 13% of people consider abortion to be a moral issue. Again, we've sort of removed it. The, 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 um, the moralistic approach was uh, to remove it as a, as a moral issue so that it became just a medical issue or a rights issue. And once that happens, then it can become more socially accepted, and then therefore it's not an issue. Of, it's not a moral issue anymore at all. What's interesting to me, though, is in the wake of what they have now studied for 50 years when it's come to the wake of what people have dealt with when it comes to abortion is what they call post-abortive care. You can look this up, PAC, post-abortive care. And like almost 80% of clients have requested that it's a high priority, or basically polled, that it's a very high priority that they have you know, post-abortive care, mental and physical uh, and emotional care po for post-abortions. And yet, we know this to be also true based on the research, that 80% of the, of the places that offer abortions do not care to offer post-abortive care. Right? They, they don't see it. Why? Because when we remove the... the, the, the the moral issue of it, and when we remove the medical issue of it, well, then it's just, we get to remove all the, all the, you know, we get to bypass all the problems that it may or may not cause because we can create exceptions to that rule. And yet, again, we've seen it. And, and, and at best, most people, most research try to, tries very hard to make it inconclusive. But over the last 50 years, when it comes to depression and post-traumatic stress and social disorders, interpersonal disorders, and, and, and anxiety, and some of the other things that have affected people who you come to find out later on have had an abortion, and, and, and they go, well that, well, that shouldn't matter. And, and so there's an argument about correlation versus causation. And listen, I'm not smart enough to get into all of those things with you. All I know is that the wake, the wake of destruction that we've seen in women's and men's lives because of the moralistic leaning in to just make abortion acceptable. It's huge, let alone the issue of abortion that we view as a church as, as, as murder. We view it as a church, and it's, it's taking life. It shouldn't surprise us because God tells us that, you know, he's, he formed us in our mother's womb. God tells us in his word that, you know, we can't take life and not experience trauma or chaos from taking life, and that he meant that across the board, with, whether it was war or whatever the case was. Like, he meant it across the board. At the end of the day, none of those things should surprise us. And yet, most people, and Christians, because we lean so heavily into the moralistic arguments of the day, we sort of lose what we have called to set us apart. You don't... You don't have to agree with any of those things. So you don't have to agree with 
laws and state stuff. And I, we're not having that conversation. I, I'll have that conversation with you. I'll, I'll be honest. I'll have that conversation with you. But here's the deal. If you, if you think I don't have an opinion because I'm a man, we're not going to get very far. Okay? If you think, if you, if you want to bring the argument to me and it's about rights and it's about, you know, what side of the cervix you're on, whether you're alive or not, we're not going to get very far. Okay? We're not going to get very far. For you and I, if it's void of the conversation and it's void of the word of God, it's a fruitless conversation. I'll, you know, whatever rights you want, go for it. I want people to be free to choose life. That's it. I just want people to be free to choose life. I don't necessarily want any of those things demanded for or against. I, I just want people to be able to choose life. And I want the church to return to being a house of refuge for people. That when there is unplanned pregnancies and when there is those things, that they come to the church and the church can help them get the resources they need and the guidance they need and the paths they need and the health care they need to make the decision for themselves. That's one of the reasons we work with Love Life. Uh, Pastor Shin's going to share with you later on. We're, we're This next week, uh, Love Life is doing their 40th prayer walk for, the, for this year. And, uh, and we go and we celebrate and we don't protest and you know, they call it a protest, but they don't, we, don't, we don't hold picket signs and yell and argue with anybody. We just pray. And I met with about 80 pastors and leaders the other night. We just, we just prayed. We prayed for mothers and the unborn, and we prayed for fathers, and we prayed for family members, and we prayed for health care workers, and we prayed that, that people would have the ability to choose life. Why? Because God is the author of life. And we're holding to the only truth we have, the absolute truth of his word. And that's the only thing that's going to set us apart. Again, you can have, we can have a lots, of, lots of nuanced little conversations about when life does and doesn't and cell regeneration and all that kind of, We can have all those conversations. And I'll, I do my best to be gracious. But at the end of the day, if, if we're not holding to this as the truth, then it's a fruitless conversation. It is. Now, the transgenderism, the reason I said it's kind of similar is because the path that it's taken in our society is very similar in terms of, well, if we could just get it, if we can just get it morally accepted, then it no longer becomes a moral issue. If we can just get it, you know, again, devoid from, we'll pull, we'll pull gender away from the biological sex, we'll pull it medically away so that it's more psychological, again, that doesn't surprise us, you know, how I think, therefore I am, how I feel, therefore I am. That's where we are as a society. I can pull gender away from this, therefore this doesn't have to conflict with Scripture. This doesn't have to conflict with a, a faith or a religion. And at the end of the day, you're like, look, you're just, you're continuing again. This moralistic argument is going to continue to fail you. The, the, the problem is the moralism fails you eventually. Right? Because the more we've, the easier we've made it for kids to transition and the easier we've made it for people to kind of live out their own little desires of what they think will make them happy, the wake continues to grow of the exceptions they're having to make for everybody they didn't work for. Right? The, the, the continual reports have to continually come out that no, they were not in danger of suicide. Because they didn't transition. As a matter of fact, they're more prone to suicide because they did. And now that the reports are continuing to come out, again, it's, it's just bound to fail. 
And there's nothing we can do if we just want to take the moralistic conversation to its end goal than just let it continue to wreck lives. Or, as followers of Christ, we can have a conversation. We say, guys, I, I, I can tell you what I read in Scripture. I can tell you what I believe. It's not that we can't scientifically, like we haven't tried to figure out how to make a man a woman or a, a woman a man. We've apparently made some incredible progress in those things. But it hasn't really changed a whole lot of the, the struggles that people are having. The vocal few, the vocal minority, the really vocal minority, want to continue to champion it, which is fine. But, but you are called to be set apart. You are called to be able to have this conversation and be able to re respond in such a way that brings about the light, brings about the truth in a way that's compassionate, in a way that's generous and gracious. We're not supposed to use this, this truth we stand on as a weapon to destroy and tear down other people. Matter of fact, here's, again, here's how it's, Paul says it to the church in Ephesus and to the church in Colossae. He says this. Again, he's talking about sexual, sexual ethics. Let there be no sexual uh, immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Such sins have no place within God's people or among God's people. I've seen stories, foolish talk, coarse jokes. These are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. You can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person is going to inherit the kingdom of Christ or of God, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Basically, like, you wanted what this world offered, you got it, that's your prize. Don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins. What he means by that is just because, listen, just because you don't want to argue abortions or you don't want to, you know, you're, you're nervous about the conversations, you know, I understand that, but, but you can't just simply go along with people who are deceived. You, you have to be able to understand that, that the people who, who excuse these things, they're just trying to justify it so they can move forward in peace. You do not have to justify it in order to move forward in grace. The anger of God's going to fall on all those who disobey him, but don't participate in the things that people do. For once you were full of darkness, but now you're light from the Lord. So, have, so live as people like you. You have this light. So now live like that. Live as people of light. This light within you produces only what is good and right and true. Again, going back to the word of God, going back to his Holy Spirit, it produces what's right and true. Carefully determine what pleases the Lord. Take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, expose them. Again, don't hear expose them as an expose, you know, as, a, as an attack job. Expose them says, we don't want to, we're not going to just pretend that it doesn't exist. We're not just going to pretend that everything's okay with this conversation. We have to expose it to the light. We have to be, again, held to the truth of the word of God to be set apart. Now, here's what he tells the church in Colossae. He says, uh, or actually this is Timothy, and, and he, we're going to read Colossians in a minute. Gently instruct those who oppose the truth. Why does he say that? In 1 Peter, he says, do it with respect. Why does he tell Timothy to gently instruct those who oppose the truth? Perhaps God will change the people's hearts, and they will learn the truth. Perhaps God will change their hearts, and they will learn. They will come to their senses and escape from the devil's trap, for they have been held captive by him to do whatever he wants. There are people living in, in deception. There's people who are living in those lies. And again, moralistic or not, they, they, they live in this. 
and we don't tend to have the compassion to be gracious as we instruct people in truth or to share the light of Christ with them. We just want to, you know, no, it's wrong. Get them. I just don't see, I don't see being set apart and living out this holiness that God's called me to as a way of winning an argument. I don't think that's going to get me there. I don't think that's going to be the thing that God's going to be so pleased with me. When I, when I just, just crush the other person with intellect and reasoning. No, I think God is the one who changes hearts. I think our response being set apart, like I said, one of the things that we go, when we go down to Love Light, we just pray. We just pray. There's qualified people having sidewalk conversations with families who, who want to get more information. There's qualified psychologists and people who do ultrasounds. What do we as a church do? We just pray that God would change hearts because that's what we know we can do. Here's the bottom line as we close up. It's, if we want to move away from the moralistic approach from any of these conversations and we really do want to know what it is to model being set apart, we've got to bring people back to the ideals and instructions of God and, and, and in order to do that, it has to connect to the heart of the Father. Okay? It has to connect to the heart of the Father. It cannot be rules for rules' sake. It cannot just be saying, hey, trade that one rule-based system in for my really awesome Christian rule-based system. By the way, Christians have done this for a long time. Hey, trade your rule-based system in that's leading you to hell and just come follow this other rule-based system that's much harder. Right? That's what Christians have done. It's, it's us living out this light. It's us living out the heart of the Father. Let's go to Colossians. This is the, the passage we're going to read together. If you've got your scripture card um, in front of you, it's in the little chair. But we're going to read Colossians, just a few of these verses together to see what we mean when we say that. What does it look like to tie people, to give people back the heart of the Father and to let that be the thing that sets us apart? This is where it starts, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation in verse 5. So put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with the sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things, again, when your life was still part of the world. But now it's time to get rid of anger and rage and malicious behavior and slander and dirty language. Don't lie to each other, for you have stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. Put on your new nature. Be renewed as you learn, uh, learn to know your creator and become more and more like him. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free, Christ is all that matters, and he lives in all of us. Since God chose you, again, to be the holy people he loves, separated from, set apart for, you must clothe yourself with tenderness, or sorry, tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourself with love, 
which binds us together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as a member of one body, you are called to live in peace. So always be thankful. I want you to just consider your week that's ahead, and I want you to just ask yourself, what does it look like? I mean, listen, again, I was telling you about the doctor I was talking about, like, you don't practically maybe have to have this conversation every single day. And, and, and if you're anything like me, you're just like, thank God. You know, I don't want to have this conversation every day. I don't want to have the depth of these kind of conversations every single day. But I do want to consider, what does it look like this week? And the conversations I am going to have, and the cultural moralism that kind of comes my way, what does it look like to be set apart for him? What does it look like to be set apart because of his work in my life? And if there is a conflict, if there is, you know, a, a, a place that we don't align, if there's a conversation in which I have the opportunity to be light in the darkness, I want to do it with, with peace and respect and to be gracious. But I also want to be able to take them to the heart of the Father. I have no desire to, to shun or shame or guilt anybody, but to continue to remember where my truth is found. Especially, especially when it comes to some of these big issues in our culture, big conversations that are probably happening in your family or at least in your workplace. Let me pray for you as we close. Heavenly Father, thank you so much again for your, the way your word challenges us. And God, just give us opportunities this week to be set apart, to live in such a way that we can really see it for ourselves. Where have we leaned into the moralism of the day? Where have we leaned into, well, you know, as long as the rules kind of keep people kind of acting okay, I'll be fine. Versus really being set apart by your word and, and ultimately how to live as people of the light. Especially in conversations that do have nuance and especially in conversations around issues that are multi-layered. Especially in conversations with people who... Their identity is attached to things. Their, their, their whole being for people who are living and being deceived and living in a lie they don't even realize. And as I think about that verse of just being held captive, I, my heart breaks. May that be opportunity for us to share your love and let your love be the thing that guides us in these conversations. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.